0: Holy Father, we look to you today as our only hope, our healer, our sustainer. We were dead in sin, and you have rescued us and made us live. You give life that is physical, but more importantly, you give spiritual life. May our hearts be radically charged with your life today. I am burdened, Lord, for many things. There are people impacted by the shootings this week, lives needlessly lost. We pray for all those who are affected, for families, for friends, for the communities. Lord, we understand better than many how devastating a mass shooting is. We've been stunned by the images of death and destruction in Central Asia. We pray for the countless people who are grieving. Lord, we're grateful for the examples we see of Your divine providence working to preserve life, but still overwrought with the loss of life. And we pray for all of those, Lord, who are suffering. We pray for those who are helping with the relief efforts in the ministry. And we continue to think of those, Lord, who are impacted by war in places like Ukraine we ask that You would bring peace. We cannot imagine how Your heart grieves over sin's consequences. Yet, You are working a glorious plan of redemption and restoration. You are moving this broken world to a marvelous destination, a new creation filled with worshipers that are no longer affected by sin. Even so, Lord, as with John, we join in in saying, come quickly and set us free from this cursed world. Lord, in our midst today, we have people that are facing innumerable challenges. Lord, some are facing health issues and career issues, financial issues, personal loss, spiritual doubts and fears. In our midst are those who are struggling with broken relationships. We pray that Your Spirit will apply that incredible, gentle balm of Gilead to souls. That You would give comfort and peace. and That You would turn our tears into laughter for Your glory. For the one among us today who is in bondage to sin, we pray for the liberating power of the Gospel to destroy the shackles to regenerate the heart. To take away, Lord, the heart made of stone. And instead, give a heart of flesh. Lord, we pray that in Christ our worship is pleasing to You. Turn our hearts and affections from temptation and from sin. And fill us with Your Holy Spirit. Empower us to truly rejoice in You. So we pray That, Lord, as You fill our hearts, that You would lift our eyes looking upward from whence shall come our help. Our help comes from You. And may it radiate, Lord, not only in our hearts and minds with peace and comfort, but, Lord, extend from us that others may see and be drawn to You. And we make all of this our petition to You in Jesus' name. Sweet and wonderful name, amen, amen. We consider worship gatherings like ours to be sacred, sacred moments, sacred times, set aside to encounter the living God, to join our voices together, our hearts together, and praise Him. All over the world, there are innumerable sites that are designated for gatherings just like ours today. There are marvelous edifices. Many are simply breathtaking to look at. A lot of focus on such things, and rightfully so. Hebrews 12, 28, and 29 says this. It says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, For our God is a consuming fire. You and I are made, we're built for worship. It is what God made us to be. Worship is first and foremost an attitude of the heart. We come into this world rebellious. We come into this world hard, indifferent, even apathetic. And in Christ, we see that change that takes place. We're made into spiritually living creatures. He gives us a heart of flesh, makes us to be born again, gives us affections that hunger for God, and it is our hope and desire to nurture those and to express them, to acknowledge His attributes, His character, to exalt Him, that all may know who He is and that He's worthy of worship we worship as a local assembly gathering together each week at regular times and we worship day by day as we go about through our lives we worship as individuals in all things that we encounter we're made and built to worship we worship and make much of god by the way we live and conduct our lives first corinthians ten thirty one says so whether you eat Or drink or whatever you do. Do all for the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do in word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. The way we live. The way we talk. The choices we make. All have something to do with our worship. They show worship. So it's a matter of to whom and for what is our worship directed. If you look back to verse 21 in chapter 5 here in Ephesians, we read this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our attention has been on the household. It's been on the family. It's been on our most intimate relationships. And this whole text falls under this verse 21. This is the heading. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Out of reverence or worship for Christ. Wives and husbands, parents and children, masters and slaves. Now, masters and slaves has uh, kind of a double-edged meaning here. It can apply to the household as it did in Paul's day. Masters and slaves, those who are serving in the household, to the pleasure of the master, the estate owner. And it also speaks to our work environment as we think about those we are subject to, those who have authority over us in whatever we may be doing. And every one of us has someone That we answer to. Now, there are plenty of cultural hot button issues in this text that we've been examining. Society tells us that it is wrong for wives to submit to their husbands. Society is working hard to separate children from parental authority. Who would have thought a few years ago that we would need laws to protect parents' rights over what their children study in school? Many desire to destroy systems with structure and definition. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, for as long as we want to do it, without any interference from anyone else. Such structures represent authority and power, which in many people's minds translates to abuses. Many are opting instead for chaos in the name of fairness and equality. So how should... We Christians navigate this modern landscape. Should we agree with the cultural attitudes, actions, and trends? Should we go along just to get along? Should we surrender and adopt these social patterns? How are we to navigate such challenges? Does the Bible speak clearly to these matters? Or is indeed the Bible antiquated? If the Bible does speak to them... Will that be enough to satisfy us? Will that be enough to convince us to stake out a position, even though it may be unpopular, and stay there? This text is loaded with lots of things, and we're going to try to cover as much of it as we can. I wish we had much more time to spend on it. But he starts right out of the gate talking about slaves and masters. Slaves and masters, your text has cleaned it up somewhat and says bond servants, as mine does. But basically, it's speaking to slaves and masters. How do we translate bond servants? How should we think about these terms? It's important that we be deliberate and that we handle them with care. In our modern context, we are influenced by uh, our history, our American history, are we not? So when we think about slavery, we think about masters, we have certain ideas that come to mind, and rightfully so. In ancient times, slavery was somewhat different. It was helpful sometimes in that culture. It allowed people to move out of a situation that they were in where they couldn't provide for themselves and maybe get some traction and be able to move forward. You see, there was built into the culture this... this, um, Uh, Liberty that would come at a certain point in time where the owner would then move the slave out of serving into a role where he received compensation and had an opportunity to get started building a life for his own. But American slavery, our experience with slavery, is much different. It was more cruel. It's more inhumane. And we know and see the depravity that was associated with it. It's good for us to remind ourselves of just how horrible it was. So I doubt that there's anyone in this room that would uh, spend any time or give any thought to trying to justify the slavery that our country has known. Now, Some Bible passages do not explicitly condemn slavery. This emboldens critics to accuse the Bible of being out of date, to being irrelevant. Honest interpretation and application, though, of the New Testament has repeatedly led to the elimination of dehumanizing systems of slavery and abuse. It has been said where Christ's love is lived in the power of His Holy Spirit, unjust barriers and relationships are inevitably broken down. Critics instead focus on certain texts like 1 Timothy 6.1 where we read, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the, teach- and the teaching may not be reviled. Or Colossians 3.22 that says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord." So critics will argue that such texts appear to leave slavery in place, condoning this system. They claim that these texts do not blatantly condemn it, so therefore the Bible is offering some legitimate condoning of it. So is that true? If these criticisms are accurate, then the Bible's relevance is brought into question. So what does the Bible say about this system of existence where there's where there are relationships where there's an oppressor and one who feels the brunt of that oppression? First Timothy one10 ten. I'm going to read several verses, so I would encourage you to write down the annotation. You can go back and look at these later, but just try to listen and pick up on what the Bible is saying. First Timothy one ten the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. James 3.9, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Matthew 7.12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. Mark 12:31 The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Romans 3:10 Love knows no love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Galatians 3:26 through 29 For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Ephesians 4.25 Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Colossians 3.24, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. 1 Corinthians 7.21-23, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity." For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Colossians 4.1 Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Philemon 15 and 16, For this perhaps is why He was parted from you for a while, that you might have Him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So what are the implications of all of these texts? You can take a couple of texts that seem to leave slavery in place or look at the whole body of work as presented in God's Word. If a Christian slave owner and a Christian slave obey the teachings in these verses, the relationship would dramatically change. The master is changed from owner to one who is owned by Christ, just like the slave. The slave is changed from being property to being a fellow heir of Christ along with the master. It's clear in the New Testament that roles are different. What once was is no more, yet the social framework or shell appears to remain. Paul addresses masters as masters and slaves as slaves. He does not directly instruct masters to stop being masters as the culture permits. He does not directly tell slaves to stop being slaves as the culture permits. But he does say, if you can gain your freedom, do it. The social structure or shell of these matters is left in place by society. But for Christians, it is no more than that, a social structure that has been gutted. Even if the labels persist, the structure is forever changed, and it is not slavery. Since Adam and Eve sinned, injustice and abuse has existed, and it has existed around the world in every culture, every place. There are no exceptions. Modern slavery is still a real thing. It's still going on and in surprising places and in surprising numbers historic laws that once allowed slavery have been scrapped worldwide yet yet almost half of the membership of the United Nations has no criminal law on the books against slavery those people who point their finger and accuse others still have nothing that says Slavery is illegal. And thus, it is allowed to go on. It is allowed to persist. What does modern slavery look like? Well, we still have slavery by ownership. Chattel slavery, like the United States had as a part of its history. Government conscription, forced military service, or government labor. Forced prison labor. Forced migrant labor. Debt bondage, slavery until debts are paid. Sexual slavery, forced marriage, forced child marriage, child labor, forced begging. I've seen children in India that were merely props for adults. Parents would give their children over to someone maybe for some sort of restitution. And they would intentionally maim the child to make it more pitiful and sorrowful in order to gain begging receipts. Sex trafficking is a major slave trade operating all around us. As is typical, many turn a blind eye to it for lots of different reasons. Modern society tolerates many systems that are oppressive. The gaming gambling industry essentially turns people into slaves. They use financial pressure and tantalizing opportunity to get something quickly, get something more than what they have, and it's used to enslave people into debt. Slaves and masters. It takes on many forms in our culture even today. Paul says... Bondservants, servants. Obey your earthly masters. This brings us to what I really want us to think about this morning. He uses the terminology common in the culture. But he says earthly masters. And he's implying that there's a master who is not earthly. There's one that does not fit the description that he's leaning into here. But he says all of us have masters in different forms. We may have a a form of slavery, oppressiveness, or you may just have a boss at work. You may have someone, a creditor, that you owe money to. You have made them a master over you. So all of our earthly masters, Paul's referring to here, that bond servants and slaves should do obedience to these earthly masters. And then he says, with fear and trembling. Now, this raises a question. Is this directed toward the earthly masters? Is he saying that you should fear and tremble before these earthly masters? And I would answer and say, no. I think we go back to verse 21 of chapter 5, and we see here the overarching theme for this text, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if you look over into Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. What? With fear and trembling. It's the exact same phrase that he uses here in our text. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So what's Paul doing here? Well, notice. Notice what he's working toward. He's working at moving beyond what's external. He's working beyond that which we see and what we feel in the flesh. And he's going after the heart of the matter. He says here, Do this with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ Again, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering the service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Three times here, he mentions the inner life, the heart, the soul of the person. So he's talking about that attitude. That attitude, that honorable attitude. And he says so whatever relationship you're in, even in a place of oppression, if that be true. Now, he's saying if you're in bondage, you should seek freedom. There's nothing wrong with that. Yes, by all means, seek freedom. But whatever you do in whatever situation you find yourself, do it from the heart as if you're serving Christ. Now, that's not easy, is it? In fact, it's probably impossible for us. Because we always think about our masters in terms of what they're getting through our labor or through us, right? We're prospering them. they're, They're getting rich off of our labor, off of our backs. But Paul is challenging this way of thinking. And he's saying we should bring an attitude that trusts in the ultimate master who is Christ, who is over all masters. And He has allowed you to be in this situation where you have this One who is in authority over you, and He's done it for a reason. And you may not know what those reasons are. But He says to do it, to do whatever you have to do. Now, we're, again, we're ruling out those things that would call on you to violate the Word of God or the will of God, right? Right? So not doing anything illegal or immoral. But where you are serving another, even if that person is in a position of oppression over you, do it from a sincere heart as though you're doing it for the Lord. In fact, he's even suggesting that we look beyond this immediate master and look to our master who is Christ and do it as though we're serving Him. Doing it for His cause. Do not act as mere people pleasers, being hypocritical, having resentment in our hearts for doing it. So difficult, isn't it? You can't do this unless you are filled with God's Spirit and empowered by God's Spirit. It's impossible. We we have a hard time even with a kind master, don't we? Right? Let alone someone that is oppressive. But do the work. Serve with a heart that honors those over you and honors those over you, or as you honor those over you, honor your ultimate master. Christ is the ultimate master and he is a perfect master. This world is broken in every respect. Oppression and racism exist everywhere. And those who deny that it exists are lying to themselves it it exists everywhere and it has always since sin came into this world some forms are more egregious than others but it's everywhere even when it is recognized and humans seek to change the system the stain persists long after the structure is dismantled and we don't have to look any further than our own history it's now been more than 150 years since the 13th Amendment was ratified in our nation, and yet we still struggle with these issues, do we not? As we've already noted, slavery persists in many forms worldwide. Humans keep trying to fix this and this sinful model, and yet we may improve a few things along the way, but we're not really changing anything. Wickedness is a condition of the human heart, and it continues to manifest itself. Regularly, It's reported that more than 50 million people are victims of modern slavery today. I think that's a very conservative estimate. 28 million are subject to corrupt systems of forced labor. 22 million are trapped in forced marriages. Think about that. Sex trafficking is a large portion of the slave system. Out of these 50 million, more than half are probably related to some sort of sex trafficking industry. The answer is not more laws that will not be enforced. The answer is not more empty platitudes, though I'm not against those things. The answer is Jesus Christ, who is the perfect master. He is the perfect master. In Christ there is reconciliation, there's healing, there's newness, there's true freedom. That in spite of what the external system may place before us or over us or how it may coerce us, that in Christ we do have freedom because we are His true bondservant. And He's a good and kind and benevolent Master. He's joyful. He's gracious. Notice the promise He gives. Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. This applies to the bondservant or slave and to the free. The slave thinks in terms of the boss's gain and property. We mentioned that earlier. Paul makes clear that there is a reward, a gain for the slave. By honoring, by honoring the relationship, the being submissive even to that one who may be oppressive toward us. Paul says God's keeping the books. God's keeping the books. The reward comes from Him. That any good deed, anything we do that is honorable to Christ, God Himself will take care of balancing the books. Blessing. It doesn't mean necessarily immediate freedom. But this is only temporal. This world, this system, this this framework is merely temporal. God's working toward an ultimate destination that reflects His perfection, His benevolence, His kindness. And we who are citizens of that are already operating under His leadership and authority, not under this world. Jesus encountered a young man that was rich you know the story the rich young ruler who came and said what does man do to get to heaven what must i do to get to heaven have eternal life and jesus said um well you know the law and he said yeah i kept the law i've done all those things i I, i've been religious i've done all those things but something was missing and jesus knowing that he was rich said well go and sell all that you have jesus recognized that his possessions were an idol in his life they were on the throne in his life and he was unwilling to do that instead he was willing to surrender eternal life in order to live for the riches of this world which means living for things that cannot last scripture says that they will be eaten away by moth and rust and we know that we see it right If you own a home or a car or any other possession, you see this this inability, this inability to keep up with the deterioration. It's true in your human body, isn't it? Some of us reach a point where we just quit trying. It's a losing proposition. You can't keep up with the deterioration in this world. Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go sell your belongings and give them to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So these possessions were a primary obstacle to the young man. Jesus is not suggesting that simply selling everything and giving the money to the poor earns someone eternal life. That's not what He's saying. He's telling this young ruler that he shouldn't live for earthly wealth. For those of us that may be down the pecking order, under oppressive bosses or owners or things of that nature, shouldn't live in resentment of those who have in this world. But understand that our Father owns it all and that He is moving us toward a destination that includes all. The perfection Jesus points to is the eschatological blessing extended to citizens of the kingdom. But love your enemies. Do what's good. Lend expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, he says, and you will be children of the Most High. There's no partiality with our perfect and eternal Master. We see things in this world broken through a temporal flawed lens But if we see through God's lens, we see perfection being restored. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 comes to life in our hearts. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should walk in them. Our perfect master is using all things. Even what is imperfect. Even a broken, flawed framework for existence. Even where there's oppression and there's slavery. He's using these things to move us toward renewing all things. Restoring us and creating, uh, unleashing His own perfection. Of which those who are in Christ will enjoy forever. This is momentary. Momentary. This is how we are able to endure as we look toward Revelation 22:3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed. <laughs> That's good news, isn't it? Isn't that good news? No more earthquakes, no more shootings. No more hard-nosed bosses, impossible timelines. Nothing will be accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. (laughs) That's you, that's me, right? That's those of us who have submitted ourselves to this ultimate master, this perfect master. His servants will worship Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and they will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign. Listen, not only, not only do we have this incredible, perfect, ultimate Master He's so good and kind and benevolent toward us that He shares the reigning with us for all of eternity. Co-heirs. Doesn't get any better than that. Who is it? It's all who are in Christ. All who believe the gospel and turn from sin and trust in Christ alone. His atoning work as sufficient. Sufficient as the only way that we can enter the presence of God. This is our true master. This is our perfect master. He is working to manifest His great glory and He's working to bless all who belong to Him. Any injustice in this world will be swallowed up in eternity. Every injustice will be settled. It would be put in order. By this perfect master. Any abuse of power will be cast into the sea of forgetfulness. We will forever dwell in the presence of our eternal master. Who is good and benevolent and kind and gracious and joyful and perfect. Father we thank you for such a blessed promise. We thank you Lord for this hope that is ours. As we look out on a world that Lord devours itself with evil. We do evil to one another. We see evil unfolding. Lord, we work hard to protect evil systems and, in order to profit, to serve our greed. Lord, to serve our hatred and animosity and selfishness. But We're so thankful that you have made a better way. You have made a true way. That you have purchased our redemption, Lord, from this bondage of sin that has beset us in our world. And you are working, Lord, to bring us home, all the way home, to enjoy eternal life with you as our Lord, our Master, our King, where we will reign with you for all of eternity. What a glorious promise. I pray that, Lord, you might enable us in the daily of life, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what our job, no matter what our boss may be like, that, Lord, we can embrace the opportunity to live, Lord, lives that worship you even in the midst of difficult circumstances. For your glory, for your honor, and, Lord, with the understanding of our expectation that this is not our destination. This is but a moment and a time preparing us to spend eternity with you. And for that, we give you glory, we give you praise, and we give you honor. In Jesus' name, amen.